Hi everyone, this is John by the way and I'm here to talk today about Matthew chapter 27. And these are these are not the easiest chapters to read as we think about and read about and try to imagine the things that happened to Jesus in the process of crucifixion. I I just can't imagine who even thinks up a thing like this. Who thinks up what is the worst way we can kill somebody and make it prolonged? I I just can't. It was hard for me as a kid. It's hard for me now even to imagine how somebody can be so cruel and so without feeling. And I suppose it's just another way that the Savior descended below all things and went through the worst way of of death they could imagine. So it's easy for me to want to go quickly over these chapters because they're so painful to think about. On the other hand, I suppose that's the way I have to think of it, as Jesus descended below all things and did this so that he could save all of us, all of it motivated by his, his love and his patience. Years ago, I was reading a book by Gerald Lund, who wrote the whole Work in the Glory series and another one called The Kingdom and the Crown. But Gerald Lund also wrote a book called Jesus Christ, Key to the Plan of Salvation. I think that's where I came across this poem that wasn't original with him. Some Christian pastor, I think, wrote it. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails through hands and feet. They made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to our town, they simply passed him by. They would not hurt a hair of him. They merely let him die, for men had grown more tender. They would not give him pain. They simply passed on down the street and left him standing in the rain. Now, it's an interesting poem to me because I feel like the last part is about just being indifferent to Christ and what he went through. And there's a lot of approaches that the world has. Well, Jesus was a great moral teacher, but we don't believe all of that divine Son of God resurrect from from the dead stuff. And so they just kind of are indifferent to it. And as it says, just kind of leave him standing in the rain. Huh, walk away type of a thing. And for us, all of this is true and that he really was who he said he was, the, the Son of God who rose again. And that is our, that's our belief, but that is our great hope because if all of this is true, then we see our loved ones again and we live again and we are saved from an everlasting death of, of what some imagine just when you're dead, that's it. There's just nothing after that, no consciousness of anything. But we are saved from all of that. Well, the first part of Matthew chapter 27 happens when the morning comes and they take Jesus to Pilate. 
Judas regrets what he has done, tries to give back the money. They, they buy a potter's field to bury strangers in with that money. And then we have this dialogue that Jesus has with Pilate. Matthew 27, verse 17, Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? Now, the tradition of releasing somebody is alluded to here. I'm going to read now from the Religion 211 Student Manual, which is available on Gospel Library. You have to go to Adult, and then I think Young Adult, then I think Institute, and then find the, the manual. This is what it says on starting on page 90. The name Barabbas, ironically, means son of the father. The crowd, most of whom were stirred up by the chief priests and elders, called for the release of Barabbas while rejecting the true son of the father. In one sense, we are all like Barabbas. We are the sinful son set free because the true son of the father was condemned to death. According to the Greek text of Matthew 27:26, Barabbas' first name was Jesus. Jesus Barabbas was a thief, murderer, and traitor, while Jesus the Christ was perfect. Those who condemned the Savior to death were presented with a clear choice, and they chose evil. The Law of Moses provided a foreshadowing of Barabbas' release centuries before it happened. The Law of Moses taught that once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest selected two goats. One goat became the scapegoat and was released alive into the wilderness, while the other was, quote, for the Lord, close quote, and was killed as an offering for the sins of the people. See Leviticus 16, 8-10. The high priest then took blood from the slain goat into the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. He sprinkled it on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, called the Mercy Seat, symbolically making atonement for the sins of Israel. Now, quoting Gerald N. Lund again, who later became a member of the Seventy, explained how the events on the Day of Atonement foreshadowed the Savior's offering of His blood. Christ, as the Lamb of Jehovah, as well as High Priest, shed His own blood to enter into the Holy of Holies, where that blood ransomed from their sins those who would believe in Him and obey His commandments. Okay, that's the end of the quotation from the Religion 211 New Testament Manual. One of the things that I find interesting is verse 18, he knew that for envy they had delivered him. I think it's interesting they use the word envy there. The people who welcomed Jesus in, the triumphal entry and everything, I guess that the scribes and Pharisees were not being treated that way. They could not do and did not do the miracles that Jesus did. For envy, this guy is going to take our place and our nation, as it says elsewhere. They delivered him to Pilate. Verse 19, when he was set down on the judgment seat, Pilate, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. I love that she called him a just man. Not just a man, but a just man man. He was just. He was righteous. Verse 20, but the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. 
So you could see that Pilate's trying to get out of this. Whether of the twain will I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. The governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. Now, again, it's so odd to see these positions reversed, where here's Pilate trying to let him go, and saying he hasn't, what is the evil that he has done? And they don't even answer in verse 24. I, I like where Jesus asks that a similar question. For which of these crimes do you condemn me? I mean, was it healing people? Is that what bothered you? When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this, notice, just person. He believed his wife. I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. And basically, symbolically tried to wash his hands or say, I'm no longer accountable for this, and washed his hands. So, Going back to the Religion 211 manual, it says, Pilate recognized Jesus was innocent of the accusations made against him. Even his wife had warned him of Jesus' innocence. One provision of the Mosaic Law stated that if a person was found to have been killed, the elders of the city could wash their hands to signify that they were not responsible. That's Deuteronomy 21, verses 6 and 7. There are also examples in Greek and Roman literature of washing oneself as a symbolic gesture of absolving oneself of responsibility for shedding another's blood. When Pilate washed his hands, he may have been claiming innocence in a way that Jewish leaders would have understood. Washing his hands, however, did not allow Pilate to evade responsibility. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles noted that Pilate's freshly washed hands could not have been more stained or more unclean that's from a conference talk in April of 2009. Now this statement, verse 25, then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Which is an incredibly frightening statement. That they say, don't worry about it, Pilate. We'll, we'll take this. This is our responsibility. This is the comment in on page 91 still on page 91 of the Religion 211 manual. Over the past 2,000 years, people have sometimes used the statement, His blood be on us and on our children, to blame all the Jews of Jesus' time, or even Jews of later generations, for the death of Jesus Christ. Such accusations ignore scriptural accounts, stating that a great many Jews of Jesus' time believed in Him, and that His crucifixion was brought about by Roman authorities in cooperation with a relatively small group of Jewish leaders. Any anti-Semitism based on Matthew 27-25 also ignores scriptural testimony that the Lord loves the people of Israel and has a plan for their salvation. At the end of his visit to the Nephites, the Savior declared, quote, Yea, and ye need not any longer hiss, nor spurn, nor make game of the Jews, nor any of the remnant of the house of Israel. For behold, the Lord hath remembered his covenant unto them, and he will do unto them according to that which he hath sworn. That is 3 Nephi chapter 29, verse 8. So, 
I like to really emphasize that verse and also to think if we ever get into that mindset where we're looking to to blame somebody, that ignores the fact that we all needed the atonement to happen. We needed Jesus' sacrifice to happen. And also the fact that Jesus volunteered to be that sacrifice. That he says in the book of John, no man taketh my life from me, I lay it down of myself. And so the blame thing just doesn't work. We needed that to happen. We were desperate for that to happen. And he's the only one who could do it. So he has that title. He is the the Savior. Now, one of the things that, gosh, I hope you'll notice, it is possible if you search for it to get a PDF version of this Religion 211 manual. There's a really good chart on page 93 that shows all the ancient prophecies fulfilled in Matthew 27. And this is, as we've talked about, Matthew was primarily writing to the Jews, those who would recognize the, all of the scriptures in the Old Testament that foreshadowed Jesus in the New Testament. And so it's interesting to look at the list of ancient prophecies fulfilled. He was oppressed, was afflicted, he opened not his mouth. That's Isaiah 53. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, Isaiah 53. I hid not my face from spitting. Isaiah 50, it's also in 1 Nephi 19.9. Psalm 69.21, they gave me gall for my meat, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Psalms 22, they pierced my hands and feet. Again in Psalm 22, they part my garments and cast lots upon my vesture. Isaiah 53 again, he made his grave with the wicked, he was numbered with the transgressors. Psalm 22, all they that see me laugh to scorn. They shake the head saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him, let him deliver him. Verse 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That is how Psalm chapter 22 verse 1 begins. So if you're listening, you heard a number of references to Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. Those two are very messianic as they say. They all speak of the Messiah. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. And so that chart kind of, kind of shows that. One of the other things I think is interesting to note is that some people said as he was on the cross, verse 43, he trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Verse 42, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him come down now. And we remember as we read that, some of the things that Satan said in Matthew chapter 4, if thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. Some of those same things are being repeated here. At the end here, we have verse 50, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And there's footnote 50a, a JST reference, yielded up with a loud voice, then it inserts, saying, Father, it is finished, thy will is done, which is just an amazing JST edition that Jesus would say, it is finished, thy will is done. I think it means the Father's will. 
it is finished, thy will is done. It could mean that. I've, I used to think that it was his suffering, because that's what I'd be thinking about. It's, I'm done. It's over. But instead, he's thinking of the Father's will, always doing the Father's will. It is finished. Thy will is done. So please don't miss that JST reference there. And then, of course, we have Jesus being buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He was a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish governing council, He was a disciple of Jesus Christ, but secretly for fear of the Jews, it says in John 19.38. So I I think that's important to remember, again, that there were Jews, even leaders like Joseph of Arimathea, who did believe in Jesus and was persuaded that he was the Christ. So again, going back to that statement, of blaming all the Jews for, no, there were a few, a small group of Jewish leaders that made this happen. But most importantly, we all needed this to happen for him to be our Savior. So Matthew 27, we read of the crucifixion of Christ and also the fact that he yielded up the ghost. I I like that statement because it helps me to see They didn't kill him. He gave his life. He chose the time of his death. He yielded up the ghost and said, it is finished. Okay, that's Matthew 27. The resurrection is coming. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.